Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Well, it's a privilege uh, to be with you tonight. I'm excited to be in the book of Romans. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that God has used this book to change the world. Steve mentioned last week Martin Luther's commendation of the book of Romans uh, because Romans was at the core of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century uh, in Europe. It changed the course of history. Uh, This week I was dipping into a biography of a guy called John Wesley uh, who was from the 18th century and involved in the Great Awakenings. And uh, somebody wrote of him uh, that among, um, uh, they placed him among the very few that they called world controllers. Men whose power affected not only the faith and character of their own time, but coming generations. In my own life, it was an evangelistic course that covered the first five chapters of Romans called SUS. Scripture under scrutiny that led to a work of God at the university campus in Hobart in the late 90s that meant that inner city church buildings, old and cold and musty, were full. Overflowing, the balconies that had never been used for years were full. And people were flocking to hear preaching. A string of church plants south of Hobart uh, flowed from it and a wave of people left Tasmania to come to Bible colleges on the mainland. Many church leaders in Tasmania today would trace their conversion or their Christian formation to that time. I remember... Uh, During that time, I was very committed to my own church and to my own Bible studies within that church, but I also remember uh, midweek driving every week across to another place as well to hear lectures on Romans 1 to 8 and inviting my friends and my colleagues. Well, I finished my, my science degree, I got a job, and I lived in a share house with a few mates. I remember using dodo dial up internet and waiting for the next sermon of John Piper's Roman series to download. And what I learned as I sat with my flatmates listening and talking through the chapters of Romans together has stayed with me. And so I'm both excited and daunted to be coming as a church to explore the book of Romans. Who knows what God might do among us? I preached through the book of Romans um, a few years ago, and I was excited to be exploring the first chapters because, well, that's where Sus came from, the first five chapters, and I saw how God used that. But then as I preached through it, it was actually the last chapters that hit me harder and surprised me in different ways that I hadn't anticipated. I wonder what God's going to do 
with the book of Romans and you. Well, today we're in the first chapter and we're looking from verse 8 to verse 17. And if you're a note taker, I've got three points. Paul's prayers, Paul's plans and Paul's preaching. And you can see Paul's prayers there in verse, uh, verse 8 and 9. He begins first. Now, it's interesting, he never gets to second and third. I think he's just highlighting the very importance of what he is saying. But this is the first thing of importance that he wants to get to. And he says, the first thing is, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, you might look at that and think, well, there's nothing really remarkable there. But I want you to consider that he's not bitter. You see, if you were with us last week, you would have learned that God had called Paul to be an apostle among the nations, verse 5. And Paul's apostolic commission from God included those in Rome, verse 6. And God had set him apart for the gospel of God, in verse 1, And Paul himself felt the obligation to to go and to get to Rome in verse 14. And he was eager to do that in verse 15. Paul had prayed for this. He even calls God as his witness in verse 9. To witness his private prayers that they couldn't see. But I'll call God as my witness. I really am praying for this. And you can sense his desperation there in verse 10. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. You can sense there's a, there's a real longing there, isn't there, to be there with them in Rome. Paul's been praying for this. Um, he's been, well, he's been planning for it as well, hasn't he, in verse 13. I, I don't want you to be aware, unaware, he says in verse 13, brothers and sisters, that I, I've often intended, not once, not twice, but often intended to come to you. Paul's been praying for this, he's been planning for this, but God prevented it. You notice that in verse 13? But thus far have been prevented. The best laid plans, not just of mice and men, but of men in ministry, often go awry. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, God is ever upsetting our plans that he may establish his own. And Paul here has met with repeated disappointment. But he's not bitter. And nor is he jealous. Did you notice that? Uh, Notice what he says there in verse 8. He's thanking God for them, for all of them, because their faith has been proclaimed throughout the whole world. In other words, their faith had become famous. Everyone was talking about this. Was, this was a hot news, wasn't it? Um, have you heard what's happened in Rome? That even there, among those people, they bowed the knee to Jesus too. Of all the places in the world, even Romans are turning to Jesus. You can't see, of course, their faith. You can't see faith. But you can see the obedience that comes from faith. And and people must have seen it and started 
gossiping about it and talking about it and sharing and, and spreading the word that Romans, people from Rome, had become Christians. But wasn't that Paul's job? Wasn't he the apostle commissioned to bring about the obedience that comes from faith? Someone else has been succeeding where Paul had failed. George Vidal says, uh, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. I can relate to that. It's not the case here, is it? Not with Paul. He is not bitter, he is not jealous, and nor is he suspicious. He doesn't say, well, look, let's, let's, um, let's hold our judgment, let's reserve our judgment, let's wait a little while, see what happens, see how it all pans out. Wouldn't that be more prudent for jumping in? He doesn't say, look, th- there are a few issues that we need to get to the bottom of first. You know, just hold your horses. No, these are people he doesn't know. This is a work that he didn't do. A church that he didn't plant. And yet, look at his response. He's thankful for all of them. Paul offers unqualified thanksgiving to God. Well, you might say, well, that's because you never met them. But actually, this is how Paul begins almost all of his New Testament letters. Thanking God for Christians and their faith. Even the churches that are full of issues. It's extraordinary, isn't it? That Paul had never been to Rome, he'd never met these people, and yet he's full of thanks to God for them. He didn't have to download their doctrinal statement or survey their philosophy of ministry. For Paul, it wasn't our team versus their team. No, they're on the same team. For Paul, it wasn't a competition. He's in my patch. No, he calls them. Interesting, isn't it, in these first verses, how Paul defines himself. How does he find his identity? A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. He defines himself not around the things that he has done, but about the things that God has done in his life. And so when he considers other Christians, how does he think of them? Not as those Christians over there, but the called and the loved of God. I wonder if that's how you relate to other Christians, other ministries, other churches. Apparently outside of the Wesleyan Methodist Church in London, there's a statue of a guy, the guy I mentioned before, John Wesley, the gospel in his hand, and underneath there's a plaque that says, the world is my parish. Apparently, he said parochialism, that is the idea that I've got my patch and someone else has got their patch and don't you come into my patch. Parochialism, he said, 
is always an enemy of the gospel. And unchecked, we will naturally be parochial. It's the kind of creatures we are in our fallen sinfulness. But as long as we hold onto some vestige of our own contribution to our salvation or sanctification or godliness, as long as we hold onto some vestige of that, we'll always have a platform for pride, for looking down our noses at other people, some reason for seeing ourselves as better. And we'll never pray like Paul, who could offer unqualified thanks for all of the Christians in Rome. So that's Paul's prayers. But what about Paul's plans? Well, you can see them there in verses 11 and 12. Um, He says, for I long to see you. And he gives us three reasons in these verses. Um, The first one is there in verse 11. Firstly, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I think there's a little bit of ambiguity here, isn't there? Because Paul doesn't specify what the gift is. But what is clear is Paul's humility, his confidence in the Spirit, that the Spirit will provide what is needed to strengthen the faith of these Christians in Rome. It's not so much the big Apostle Paul coming uh, to Rome, coming to bestow his blessings on everyone. No, this is going to be a meeting of mutual giving and receiving, teaching and learning, a two-way street. They will encourage Paul by their faith and their obedience, it comes from faith, and Paul will be encouraged by their faith and obedience. It's a two-way thing. I don't think he's just being polite at this point, you know. I'm coming here, I want to impart some spiritual gift to you, to strengthen you. Of course, you know, that is that we may be mutually encouraged. I don't think he's just being polite here. I think there is a genuine expectation that he will personally benefit from his time with them. And you see that? That's what a spiritual gift is, isn't it? When, of course, you can have a gift, all of our abilities are gifts from God. But what makes it spiritual is when we take it out of the cupboard, out of our bedroom where we, well, we can just, you know, enjoy playing the guitar there. And when we come and we place it in a place where it will strengthen the faith of other people. It's kind of cool, actually, because it means you can reverse engineer spiritual gifts. You can think about, okay, what is it that's going to strengthen the faith of another person? Ah, I could do something to help that. It's a spiritual gift. Paul wants to share one with these Roman Christians. That's one reason he wants to come. But then in verse 13, he says, I've often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the other, the rest of the Gentiles. Um, Paul wants to go fruit picking. Because there are more 
in the city of Rome who were loved of God and called to belong to Jesus Christ. There were more Gentiles who were called to be saints. There were more Romans who would respond to the gospel. More fruit to harvest. And Paul's prayers, you see, just naturally lead to plans to come. To see more unbelievers become believers. But it's interesting here because it's not just unbelievers who need to hear the gospel, according to Paul. Look at what he says there in verse 15, the third reason he wants to come. Not just to share a spiritual gift for their mutual encouragement and strengthening of faith. Not just in order to reap a harvest among other Gentiles who would also come to Christ. But to, look what he says in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel. What does he say? Verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. To you also who are in Rome. Paul didn't have one set of sermons to reap the harvest among the unbelievers and another set of sermons to strengthen the saints the Christians, Paul just had the gospel. Because mission and maturity have the same means. It's the gospel that both wins people to Jesus and it's the gospel that strengthens them to keep trusting Jesus. It's the gospel. So the gospel is for believers as well as unbelievers. And why is that? Well, it's in verses 16 and 17. The the verses that have turned the world upside down. The verses that led to Martin Luther becoming a Christian in the 16th century. The the verses that, that led to John Wesley in the 18th century. The verses that have turned the world upside down. Verses 16 and 17. You see, why is it that Paul wants to come to Rome to, to share this spiritual gift, uh, to, to reap a harvest, to preach among the Christians? Why is it that he wants to do that? For, because, verse 16, I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel, if you preach it, will bring shame upon you. People will hate you. If you preach the gospel, people won't like you. People might distance themselves from you. They might tease you. They might mock you. It will, it will bring shame, but we're not ashamed of it. Why? Why is it that Paul is willing, yes, to, to experience the shame of preaching the gospel, but why is it that he's not ashamed of it? And that he wants to even take it all the way to Rome. For it's the power of God. Power of God for what? For salvation, that is, that is uh, to get you all the way. Not just converted, but to save you in the end, ultimately. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. You see, what is it that's going to get you from this broken, fallen creation into the new creation? What is it that's going to take you, uh, as, as John Bunyan says in Pilgrim's Progress, from the city of destruction to the celestial city? 
What is it that's going to, to keep you and guard you and guide you along the way so that you won't fall into this trap or that trap or this temptation or, or be thrown off by that? What is it that's going to get you there? What is it that's going to get you unto salvation? It's the gospel. The same gospel that, that led you to Christ in the first place. The same gospel that converted you, that, that birthed in you a new heart, that made you born again from above so that you're a new cre- creature. But how are you going to get as a new creature out of this fallen world into the new world? Well, there's no more tears, no more death, no more crying. The old order will have passed away. What's going to get you there? Is it something beyond the gospel? Something after the gospel? Is it something other than the gospel or in addition to the gospel? No. It is the gospel itself. The gospel is a school from which you will never, ever graduate. Because even for all eternity... You'll rehearse it in worship of Jesus for all he's done. Because, verse 17, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is this righteousness business? Is it the character of God that he is right? Is it the saving works of God? That's how the Bible often uses this word righteousness of God to talk about his his saving righteous actions. Or is it the status, the judicial status that is conferred on a sinner? It's an alien righteousness. It doesn't belong to them. It's God's righteousness that he imputes, that he imparts, he gives to us so that when we stand before God, God sees us not as our sinful fallen self, but in the righteousness, in the robes of Jesus? Is it that status? Well, it's all of that, isn't it? It's the righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel. As Paul will go on to say, um, the gospel shows how God can be just. Holy, right, And the justifier of sinners. How can God do that? We're going to learn in Romans. It's incredible. Powerful. To get us all the way. It's the gospel. That Jesus lived a righteous life. So I don't have to. That Jesus died a death. For sin. So I don't have to be ashamed. That's why Paul prays. That's why he's so thankful at the whiff of faith. We've got a dog that uh, has perfected the art of begging, that just stares at us while we eat. It takes it to another level by uh, putting its please paws up on our knee. And then, as if that wasn't enough, put her head and her floppy jaws onto our lap and salivates. 
Well, that's Paul there, isn't it? All it takes is just the smell of faith. And he's salivating with thanksgiving. Because that's all it takes. Just faith. Nothing more. Nothing less. Because the righteous will live by faith. Isn't that good news? What a God, what a gospel. I want to close by reading some words that celebrate the gospel. They're written by Colin Buchanan. He puts it better than I can, so have a listen. The gospel is the garden, not the gate. The gospel is the marriage, not the date. Not the reservation, it's the flight. More than just a sunrise, it's the light. Wake in it, walk in it, eat, sleep and talk in it. If you believe in it, live in the gospel. Run in it, rest in it. Take every breath in it. Jesus, our righteousness, live in the gospel. Laugh in it, weep in it. Dive way down deep in it. Fall in a heap in it. Live in the gospel. Work in it. Sweat in it. Pay every debt in it. Jesus, our champion. Think in it. Smile in it. Walk every mile in it. Face every trial in it. Live in the gospel. Care in it. Share in it. Let down your hair in it. Jesus, our sacrifice. Jesus, our Lord and life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you that it is by faith that we are saved. That the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Help us to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5pm Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au.